So we gather again on yet another day of frozen wilderness here in the tundra of western Pennsylvania in January 2018 and now February 2018. Plenty of snow and cold so far this year. I guess appropriate though as we look at this book that is most commonly called the book of Numbers, which is actually the title that comes from the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation. But as we've seen, the Hebrew title of this book is Bemidbar, In the Wilderness. And so this book really is about God with his people in the wilderness, which is incredibly applicable to our lives that we live in the wilderness. We, like Israel, have been delivered, but we have not yet reached the promised land. And so we are in that time in between, in the wilderness, as God's people heading towards the promised land together. So as we prepare to hear God's word again, let's first go to him in prayer. Our Lord God, we love that you speak to us. And so we pray that you would speak again. Bear witness to the word that has been spoken and recorded. Bear witness by the sending of your Holy Spirit into our hearts that we might hear you speak to us. And so we pray for the preacher He is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. I want to read this morning chapter 6 in its entirety, and then we're going to do a review, but illuminated by what we see here in chapter 6. So may God add his blessing to the reading of this word as we hear God speak to us together. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites. And say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of his vow of separation, No razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly in his presence, thus defiling the hair he has dedicated, he must shave his head on the day of his cleansing, the seventh day. Then on the eighth day, he must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for him because he sinned by being in the presence of the dead body. That same day, he is to consecrate his head. He must dedicate himself to the Lord for the period of his separation and must bring a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. The previous days do not count because he became defiled during his separation. Now, this is the law for the Nazarite when the period of his separation is over. He is to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. There he is to present his offerings to the Lord a year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering, a year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, 
together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and a basket of bread made without yeast, cakes made of fine flour mixed with oil, and wafers spread with oil. The priest is to present them before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord, together with its grain offering and drink offering. Then, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that he dedicated. He is to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair of his dedication, the priest is to place in his hands a boiled shoulder of the ram and a cake and a wafer from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest, together with the bread that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows his offering to the Lord in accordance with his separation. In addition to whatever else he can afford, he must fulfill the vow he has made according to the law of the Nazarites. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Well, each sermon so far has reviewed the previous chapters. Why? The Bible has lots of repetition so that it will be remembered. There is repetition within narratives itself. There's repetition within a book of the Bible, and there's certainly repetition in all the books of the Bible as a whole. It is meant to be remembered. Remember that before the days of books, before you could uh, just have a Bible with you all the time, the only way you knew God's word was to have heard it in such a way that you memorized it and remembered it. So we want to review chapters 1 through 5 with illumination from chapter 6. This chapter we just read is mainly about the Nazarite vow and sounds really kind of extreme. Abstain from all fermented drinks, grapes in any form, including raisins. Not cut your hair. Must not touch any dead body, even if it's a family member. And at the end, bring significant sacrificial offerings. The whole thing extensive and expensive and public. You couldn't just say to yourself, I think maybe I'm going to try out this little Nazarite thing for a little while, see how it goes, and if it works out, maybe I'll tell some people. What if you decided to make the vow, and then you blew it? What if you couldn't make it all the way through? What, why would anyone go to such extremes anyway? Well, remember how this book of the Bible begins. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. Consider again how amazing that is. The God of the Bible, the one true God, is the God who speaks to his people. God comes near to his people and speaks to them. How often we wish that God would speak to us and we forget that he has. Lots and lots, right? What we really want, if we're honest, is an easier version. We want to have God simply tell us what we are interested in knowing. Let's skip the whole Bible and God, just tell me the things that I'm interested in knowing about. And that's not how it works. God speaks to his people and tells us the things that he is interested in us knowing. 
Because as it turns out, what God wants us to know is way more important than what we want to know and draws us nearer to God, which is what we both really want. So chapter one is about a census to determine how many men are available to fight if and when the nation is to go to war. And this book, like every book of the Bible, has a purpose to it. This purpose of this book is to call the second generation of Israel, the generation that will be born in the wilderness, calling them to uh, arms as the holy army of God. And so this basic outline is what we're seeing so far constituting this first army. We're going to see the failures in that march and then constituting a second army. And this covenantal interpretation really sees Christ in the Old Testament. We see that Christ has won our victory. And so Christ calls us to a spiritual battle, which begs the question, how prepared do you feel that you are for spiritual battle? Yeah, me too. The Nazarite vow is about being trained and equipped for spiritual battle in the wilderness of our lives. Chapter 2 directed the 12 tribes of Israel to camp around the tabernacle, the great foreshadowing of Christ who is the word that became flesh and tabernacled among us. And the spirit that now dwells in us, tabernacles in us, so that we are tabernacles of God with the spirit dwelling in us. The church being built together to be a tabernacle of Christ. And just as a person could not simply declare that they were an Israelite, but joined a particular family, clan, and tribe, so a person cannot simply say, I'm a part of the church, but joins a particular local church family. The New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. The Old Testament Israelites were the Old Testament church. So they camped around God in order to be close to God. How close are you to God most days? Yeah, me too. The Nazarite vow is about focused, total commitment to God. Separation from the distractions of the world to have concentrated nearness to God himself. Chapter 3 is the census of that 13th tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi. The descendants of Levi, the ancestors of Levi, become the priestly tribe, right? The priests wear Levi genes, right? Have the genes of Levi. In the history and practice of the the Levitical priesthood, we see that God takes his worship seriously, and so we are too as well. Coming into God's holy presence is not a natural thing, and not something to be taken lightly. Remember, one of the jobs of the Levites was to stand guard so that nobody approached the tabernacle incorrectly. We need a mediator, and that is who Christ is, that mediator. And so the Levites foreshadow that final work of Christ. In worship, do you experience the reverence and awe that comes from being in the presence of the holy God? Do you tremble with fear mixed with joy in God's palpable presence right now? Yeah, me too. The Nazarite vow is about total worship. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and recognition that Jesus specifically redeemed you. 
chapter 4 then gives the specific duties of the Levites when the Israelites were to be on the move in the wilderness. The Kohathites, Christianites, and Merorites tasked with moving everything from the Ark of the Covenant and the most holy things of the tabernacle to things like the tent pegs and the tent frames, the most menial kinds of things. And we see that God assigns to all of us particular tasks and responsibilities and callings. Because the God of the Bible, unique to all other gods, the true God is both transcendent, high and holy, but also imminent, dwelling with his people. The triune God involved with his people and involved with our prayers. Our prayers go to the Father with the intercession of the Son, raised to them with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. How spirit-filled are your prayers? How well do you do it joyfully accepting the menial and difficult tasks that God gives you without complaining? Yeah, me too. The Nazarite vow is a voluntary vow. It's a voluntary vow of separation for both men and women who desire to see things from God's divine point of view. Our prayers dramatically change when we pray from God's point of view and not just from our own. Our understanding of answers to prayer change dramatically when we seek to see them from God's point of view rather than from our point of view. Chapter 5 that we saw last week gives three case studies of maintaining purity and restoring purity among people in the camp. There was ceremonial uncleanness, there was discharges of various kinds, and then also unfaithfulness. And in particular, we saw that ceremonial kind of stuff and the curse that came with mankind's fall into sin is really revolving around death. Our alienation from God is not simply our outward behavioral problem, our alienation from God is death. That's why the Apostle Paul cried out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus is the one who came to deliver us from death and to wash us clean. His earthly ministry brought into the covenant community those who had been excluded under the old covenant. And so we find in Jesus that bridging of holiness and wholeness so that in Jesus we have that holiness. In the wilderness under the old covenant, Numbers 5 said that those who were ceremonially unclean were to be sent outside the camp. Remember, in the camp was where you had dwelt near to the tabernacle. The tribes encamped there. So if you were unclean, if you were unholy, if you were unfaithful, you were cast outside the camp, away from the Lord. But the New Testament tells us that Jesus himself was taken outside the camp so that we could find holiness and wholeness in him. Jesus alienated from God so that we would never be alienated. Jesus forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. Jesus separated so that we would not be separated, but could be in fellowship with our Father forever. And since marriage is the key metaphor for the relationship between God and his people, adultery is the key metaphor for that breach of relationship. The book of Hosea shows us that in the Old Testament. The image of the bride of Christ, the New Testament image of the church. And we see that in Christ, he drank the cup of suffering and gives to us, as we will drink later today, the cup of blessing. The Lord's table of grace. This cup, the new covenant in my blood, drink it in remembrance of me. 
And so Jesus is fully faithful to atone for our unfaithfulness. He remains faithful even when we do not. How completely clean, sin-free, and faithful are you these days? Yeah, me too. The Nazarite vow is about true confession and real repentance, life transformation because of the grace of God. And so chapters one through five are not so much about how we deal with each other, but how the holy God graciously deals with us and how God has graciously dealt with his people throughout redemptive history because of what was ultimately accomplished by Christ. And that really takes us to chapter 6 and the fuller understanding of what's happening in chapter 6. Because when you think of chapter 6 and the Nazarite vow, think resolutions. But not the superficial, self-centered New Year resolutions that we often make, but God-focused, Christ-centered life transformation. Not so much result-oriented, I'm going to lose 20 pounds in 20 days, right? But process-oriented, a new way of living that leans on God's grace and finds God's strength in my weakness. It's said that there is no greater false expectation than in the first day of a new diet, right? The first day you're thinking, oh man, this day went great. I'm, gonna, I'm really going to conquer this thing. And by day number two or three, you've already nuked it, right? It's the difference between the weekend warrior versus those who are in it for the long haul. The Nazarite vow had to last long enough that your hair would have grown noticeably. It's a short term, but certainly more than 24 hours, right? Even more than 24 days. Think about that and the difference between memorizing, and students know about this because we cram for tests rather than generally try to memorize something. It's the difference between memorizing something 50 times in one day to try and spit it out and then forget it, or memorizing it once a day for 50 days in which you retain it for a long time. It has been the mantra of self-help gurus that it takes 21 days to form a new habit. It's probably not true. It's actually longer. And that number came from a doctor that observed that it took 21 days for patients to stop feeling phantom pains after an amputation, 21 days to adjust to other changes due to medical procedures. But more recent studies have found that it takes, on average, 66 days to form a new habit. And depending on the habit and depending on the circumstances, it can take up to eight months to really form that new habit. Malcolm Gladwell, in his 2008 book, Outliers, posits that it takes 10,000 hours to achieve mastery of a particular skill. That's four hours a day for 10 years. Or a full-time job for five years. That's why everybody wants you to have five years' experience before they'll hire you, right? Now, others have challenged this thesis, but there is no doubt that life transformation, mastery, genuine change takes time. But we're not talking about self-help here. We're talking about God-help here. But the same principles still apply. Remember, our salvation is instant, but sanctification takes a lifetime. Regeneration happens in a moment, but sanctification is the rest of our life. 
Sanctification is fueled by the same thing as our justification, God's grace received by the means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer. And so it is that as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to have genuine life transformation, we still engage in the means of grace, the word, sacrament, and prayer, over time to see true transformation accomplished. The Nazarite lived out his vow, not by moving away from the Lord, but by drawing near to the Lord by the means of grace. He didn't set up camp outside the camp, but stayed near to the tabernacle. Now, can someone abuse this vow and use it to feel holier than thou? Absolutely, right? Look at how much I read the Bible. Look how much a prayer warrior I am. Look how I know all these big theological words. I'm so much more godly than you, right? In fact, the book of Judges gives the account of Samson, the most famous Nazarite. The Lord commanded the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. In this case, it wasn't a voluntary vow for Samson. His parents had been told, make him a Nazarite from birth. And Samson did indeed grow to be quite arrogant and immoral. Ultimately, God's word held true that Samson did deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines, but not because of Samson's faithfulness. It was because of God's faithfulness. And so the Nazarite vow is not about our faithfulness, but about God's faithfulness and our desire for God's faithfulness to be at work in us and through us. The Nazarite vow was not required. You could go your whole life and never take the vow. It was, according to verse 2, a special vow. Special, that word meaning surpassing or extraordinary, voluntary. It was extra. Not meant to merit anything from God because we cannot merit anything from God. Abstaining even from good things for a time helps us to focus on the ultimate thing, God. Historically, Christians have rightly affirmed the sense of seasons of fasting, not to merit God's favor, but in response to God's favor, and it is a desire to focus more intently on him for life transformation. In fact, a week from Wednesday, February 14th, will begin the season of Lent in which many will fast from some good thing for 40 days. Now, many will do this for the misguided reasons, but that does not mean it cannot be done for a good reason. Good desires become idolatrous demands. Good things become idolatrous ultimate things. And so we can, look, we can uh, think of things in the world that have too strong a grip on our lives and total abstention for a period of time or perhaps even measured abstention. An example, we know that our cell phones and other electronic devices have become an idol for many of us. But because they are a tool for work, vital for communication, we may not be able to set it aside for 40 days or 66 days or even one day. But we can decide not to touch it in the morning until we have first spent time with the Lord. We can decide not to touch it during meals. We can decide to touch it only at certain times when we really need it. And every time we reach to grab it, 
by habit, we can direct our heart to the Lord instead. And so the Nazarite vow is not a mandate for observing Lent. Most importantly, it is not trying to earn God's favor. It's a response to God's favor and our desires for God to transform our lives. As we saw in the New Testament reading from Hebrews, uh, that the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament rules and regulations don't make us perfect. We can't be perfect. Christ is perfect. And so our goal is to see the perfection in Christ, and so it is that we are declared perfect in Christ. And out of that perfection, to have a perfecting work that is accomplished in us as we live out the means of grace. And all of that is why chapter 6 ends not with the Nazarite vow, but with the Lord's benediction. That word benediction means blessing. It's actually the two Latin words, uh, bene and dicere, which mean uh, uh, good or well and speak. So it's to speak well, to wish you well. Someone sneezes and you say, God bless you, right? You're wishing them well. God bless you. Now here's the thing. This is the Lord blessing us. The Lord is wishing us well. I bless you, says the Lord. The Lord desires to bless us. This is his idea. The Lord bless you and keep you. It's not a conditional statement. It doesn't say, I'll bless you, but only if you're a good boy. We are blessed by the God who also declares that we are good. The grace of justification declares that we are not guilty. The grace of imputed righteousness credits us with Christ's perfect righteousness. We are counted righteous in God's sight. The Lord bless you and keep you. The word that's translated keep is the same word that is often translated guard. The Lord is keeping guard over you. That's much of his blessing to protect us. We often ask and are asked, why doesn't God do more to stop evil things and bad things happening in this world? Forgetting that apart from God's grace, there would only be bad things happening. Apart from God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, we would receive nothing but bad. Every time we experience something bad in our lives and in this world, we are reminded at just how much God is keeping guard over us, protecting us from infinite and eternal evil. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Have you ever walked into a room to see a family member or a friend that you haven't seen in a long time and their face lights up when they see you? Or someone that you haven't seen in a long time and they walk into the room and your face lights up when you see them? The Lord's face lights up with delight over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. Or in most other translations, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And many commentators describe that phrase, lifting his countenance, as God's smile. God smiles on you and gives you shalom soundness, completeness, wholeness, and holiness. This is the Lord's blessing on us. And he has blessed us so that we would be a blessing to God and to others.
In Genesis chapter 12, the calling of Abraham, the Lord said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham and the nation of Israel were blessed to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And Zechariah 8 gives extensive wording on how it is that God is blessing Israel so that they will be a blessing to the nations. At the end of, the, of uh, chapter 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That is the call to the Christian. You have been blessed with the knowledge of Christ, so that the world should come and say, let me go with you, for God is with you. How do I get me some of that? God has blessed you and you are now blessing me, how do I receive this blessing from God? And we point them to the gospel truth that has been shared with us and to share it with them. We are blessed to be a blessing to God and to others. How have you been blessed? And how might you be a blessing to God and to others? In what ways can you live that out in real time and in real ways? How can you be a blessing to others who don't deserve it in reflection of the undeserved blessings that we have received? because the truth has set us free. Amen.